Good morning. Man, watching these kids lead me before the throne room of God makes me realize I'm old. <laughs> They're half my age, and still, my goodness. It's incredible what Heather is doing. Coming alongside you six, five. By doing this, by giving up her time, she is empowering them to understand what God has given them to bring to us, to bring him glory. I say this to encourage her, but also to challenge you. This has nothing to do with what, well, I guess it kind of ties with what I'm doing, but a little tangent. Mentorship is such a biblical concept. If you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, think about the idea of coming alongside somebody younger than you so that way you can pour into them and watch God use them. It's really not used at all in our culture, and I feel like we're missing so much because of that. My name's Evan. Obviously, I'm a pastor, huh? I have an idea. I got to share it. Um, I'm with Rimrock Downtown. Uh, it seems like God is slowly turning us into a second campus of Rimrock. Let's pray, kind of remind ourselves why we're here. God, we believe that you are real. And so we come right now to make you our priority. Over the next half an hour, we ask that your spirit would reveal truth to us, that it would convict, that it would encourage, that it would speak directly to us in our situation. God, right now, you are our priority. Satan, I stand against you and all that you are up to. By the name of Jesus, I just cast you out of this place, out of our minds, wherever you're at. God, we want you to have the glory. That's why we're here. Amen. All right, let me ask you a question. How many of you in here, by show of hands, believe there is a creator? Most of us. If there's a creator, therefore, we were created, right? Because we have been created, we have been made for specific purposes. You guys understand that logic? A equals B equals C. The only way for a created thing to get the most out of his, its existence is to follow the instructions of the creator. Let me give you a couple other examples. Anybody in here like Legos? You ever tried to build a big Lego set without the instructions? How does that work? How about a smartphone? Most of us in here have them. If you want to use your smartphone to the best of its ability, who should you talk to? I didn't hear, it must have been funny. Kids, there you go, right? Who rely upon Google, maybe natural intuition, who knows, right? You gotta go to its creator if you wanna understand how to use it. And we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount for what, two and a half, three months? In this, Jesus speaks directly into this philosophical train of thought to his disciples. Over Easter, Ben led us into a transition into Jesus' teaching. Jesus began by looking at the blessings that come to his disciples, otherwise known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are. Now, Jesus is looking at the way that his disciples are called to act. In Matthew 5, 13 through 17, which Ben looked at over Easter, Jesus plainly states that one of the main reasons why his disciples were created was to be salt and light in the world. So that way others would notice their good works and then give glory to his Father. 
Now, I believe that this is one of the major purposes of every person, to give the glory, the honor, the praise, and the acclaim to the one who made everything, the one that perfectly knit you together, the one that gave you that beautiful, complex, and capable brain, the one that established the natural laws in the natural world that allowed day after day to continue in the way that we needed to continue. We were created to bring him, not us, the praise because he is worthy of it. Now, according to Jesus, one of the ways to give the glory to our creator is by living the way that he has designed us to live. Matthew 5, 17 and 20, which Ben looked at last week, Jesus directly attaches himself and his teachings to the law, to the instructions that God gave to Moses from Mount Sinai. Jesus came that, said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill. Now, this statement is critical to understanding both the Old Testament law and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be looking at throughout the summer. First, it states that the law that God gave the Israelites is good. It's really hard for us to see that. In this grace-based church, which is where we should be, we often look at the law as bad. But you've got to remember, the law is a perfect creator stepping into a broken world, showing them the best way to live. How can that not be good? The second thing I hear Jesus saying in this statement of fulfilling the law is that his ministry, so his healings, what he was doing on earth, his teaching, and the way that he lives are bringing the law to fulfillment. So that Jesus is the one that's bringing it to fulfillment. And I believe he does this in at least three ways. And we're going to be looking at these three ways, whether it's me, Ben, Nick, Bill, Right? As we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to hear these three things over and over and over. First thing that we see Jesus doing is teaching the heart behind the law, the deeper meaning behind the specific commands. The second thing he teaches that he is bringing atonement from the law. Atonement is also forgiveness. And the third thing is that he is sending out the helper to empower us to obey the law. So often we stop with forgiveness, but that forgiveness is a catalyst for obedience. We're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 21 through 26. And as we do this, right, we're going to be looking at those three larger topics. Let's just get into the Word. That's why I hope you're here for the Bible. It'll be behind me, but if you have your Bible, please go there too. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gifts at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there for the, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will, be, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
Quite the passage, huh? That's easy. It means that Jesus loves us and we can live happy-go-lucky lives, right? Close the case, walk out. This has been a really good passage for me to walk through. Because there's so much in there and I was only given like 25 minutes or so, I'm going to focus more on concept. Not going to go straight to application, a little challenge in there, but not more conceptual. And so right now, I challenge you to walk away with one thing that applies to your life after I'm done. Just one. So I was a middle school teacher for a while, and in that, I heard a stat that comprehension rate for middle schoolers, which a lot of us have the same attention span, so we'll just say for us, when it's verbal, is 10%. You can comprehend 10% of things verbally. So think about that. The number of sermons that you've heard and the amount that you remember, right? So what I want you to do now, I challenge you, walk away with one thing that you can think about on the way home, that you can journal about, that you can pray about, something for you. That's why the Spirit is here, to lead you into all truth. And so if he, if he pricks your mind in a specific way, zone me out and follow the Spirit. Ignore me. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. All right, back to what I have to say. Hopefully it leads you to something. So in this passage, Jesus makes God's stance on loving people obvious. He states that being angry with a brother, insulting a brother, or mocking a brother is subject to the same punishment as murder. In Exodus 21.12, murder is punishable by death. You kill somebody, you will be killed. It's a capital offense. And here Jesus is on, is put, puts anger on the same plane as murder. Why? How could anger and murder ever be compared? What I believe that Jesus is showing us is the heart or the deeper reasoning behind this specific command not to murder. He is showing that loving others is of utmost importance to God. Let me show you the verses that support this. Anybody, can anybody recite the Ten Commandments? Maybe, right? The last six, they're behind me. What do those last six all deal with? Loving others. First four, loving God. Second, or last six, loving others. When Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment, he says the second greatest commandment in Matthew 22, 39 is love your neighbor as yourself. In on these hang all of the law and the prophets. He also tells his disciples in John 13, 35, if you want to be known as my disciples, what should you do? Love others. Then Paul in Galatians 5, 14 says, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is, these aren't the only four spots you're going to see this. It's over and over and over. The Bible declares that loving others should be an utmost priority of ours. It's because the, one of the main reasons that we have been created is to love others. It's an integral part of our design. Now, I know it's easy to hear those words without recognizing their significance. So let me give you another example of what it looks like to live out of our design. Our hearts pump blood. Our stomachs digest food so that way our bodies can have energy. Our nerves allow us to know when we are feeling pain so that way danger can be averted. 
Are you seeing where I'm going with this? In the same way that we unconsciously take our next breath, we were made to love those around us. According to the Bible, we have been created in God's image, Genesis 1.27. Now that most likely does not mean physical. I believe that it's talking about our hearts, the core of who we are. It's referring to our minds, our desires, our emotions, our willpower, those things that drive us to do the things that we do. And when you read through the Old and New Testament, it becomes so obvious that God loves humanity, that a major driving factor for him and what he does is an intense love for the ones he created. Romans 5.8, one of my favorite verses of all time. But God proves his love for us. Such a beautiful uh, road into what he's about to say. In that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. John, who spent so much time with Jesus, revealed, words revealed to him by God, said, so we have known and believed the love that God has for us, for God is love. Because God is love, and we are created in his image, we have a desire to be loved and to love others that is a part of our DNA. Would you agree with that? Do you see the value in loving others? Do you feel like you have a natural impulse towards loving other people? To being kind, to caring, to being caring, friendly, helpful? Are these qualities normal for you? I would say yes. That is because it is the way in which you were designed. But there's something else within us, another natural impulse. Have you ever been angry? Have you ever insulted or mocked someone? It's real interesting that there are times when these types of thoughts, words, and actions come so easily. Let me give you an example. So I have a a daughter. She's going to be four in August. Last summer, before she was even three, she decided for some unbeknownst reason to wake up one, two, three, four, five times a night for like a month and a half, maybe longer. We live like two floors below her, so all those stairs in the middle of the night. Now, that girl is so precious to me. I always laughed at the idea of somebody being called daddy's princess or daddy's little girl, right? But now I see why that term exists. There's few things that are as sweet and precious to me as that little thing. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, on my way up yet again, right, rage just overwhelmed me. At one point, I grabbed her sippy cup and it exploded on the wall. I'm guessing some people can maybe resonate with what I'm saying. Now, it's so often, it's so easy to justify these types of thoughts and behaviors. A person said or did whatever, a child woke me up again, therefore a natural response was to get angry or to make fun of them. They deserve it. That logic sound familiar? Now this is not the way that we were created to think or act, but it comes so naturally because of what the Bible calls our flesh or our sinful nature. Is what every man or woman is born with a heart that is set on selfish desires. 
Even though God created us to love others, there's a selfish tendency that is deep within everyone from the moment that they are born. You ever seen a little kid act selfishly? Well, if you haven't, I got an example for you. the most selfish boy in the world. He got like five presents, one of them including the laptop, and he still wants more presents. Let me show you. What's wrong, Alex? What's wrong, Alex? What do you want? Aren't you happy with the laptop you got? I hate the laptop. But there are so many people in the world who are poor and hungry and need food. You got a laptop. Do you know how cool that is? No, I hate laptops. You ever seen a grown man act like that? Set deep within each of us is an appetite to satisfy our own desires. From our selfishness, anger naturally flows. There's a constant battle raging with us, within us. Do I live the way that I want for myself, for what feels good, for what seems logical, or do I live the way that I was designed to live for others? You ever notice this battle? This pull between the two different sides? I believe because it's so common and natural, it's easy for us to dismiss the importance of fighting the battle. Some days I get angry, some days I'm kind. Oh well, it's just the way it goes. But in this passage, Jesus makes the seriousness of this battle obvious. Let's read it again. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to ju the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, I feel like by comparing the simple acts of being angry to the most extreme accounts of hatred, Jesus is catching the audience's attention. No matter what century you live in, murder is seen as one of, if not the most horrible things that you can do to another person. For the first century Jew or the 21st century American, we understand the seriousness of taking another person's life. By comparing murder with anger, along with showing us the heart behind the law, I feel like Jesus is teaching us two things. First one, any form of sin is liable for the same punishment. You're gonna see this over and over throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Any form of sin rebellion against the way that we have been designed to live is liable for the same punishment. Like I mentioned before, the law is good. It's instructions from a perfect creator on how his creation should live. Now when something is perfect, in order to maintain its perfection, it must be fully followed. 
That means when someone disobeys any form of the law, they are subject to the punishments of the contract. Let me show you Deuteronomy 28, 15, the contract that the Israelites were under. But if you, will, if you will not obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all those commandments and decrees, which I am commanding you today, then all these curses shall be upon you and overtake you. If you've never read through Deuteronomy 28, the curses are horrendous. And he clearly lays it out. You must dil- diligently observe all his commandments. Not some of them, all of them. Now, for people in Jesus' day, they believed that they had not broken this law because they had never murdered anyone. But Jesus just explained the reality of the law. Please hear me on this. You shall not murder is simply a tangible outworking of God's instructions for us to love other people. Other examples are you shall not be angry. You should not insult. You shall not call somebody a fool. They are all tangible outworkings of God's desire for us to love others. And there's endless other examples. Anytime someone does not love others in the way that they love themselves, they have broken God's law and will experience the curses of the law, which in the end is separation from our perfect creator. This is a heavy concept to consider, isn't it? Imagine living under that law knowing that the slightest thing that I do brings me into that penalty. Think about the slightest ways of not loving another leads to the hell of fire. That means that every single person in this room has been damned a thousand times due to your own actions. How discouraging. If God is love, why did he send Jesus? To point out our failures and leave us eternally defeated? You guys remember Romans 5, 8? If you'd put it up for me, please. But God proves his love for us. Remember, that is what he is doing. In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You gotta remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to his disciples, to those who have decided to follow him to learn from him and to apply his teachings to their lives. These are men and women who have decided that Jesus is the one that they will depend on. They have put their faith into him, that he is who he says he is. This is why he starts by telling them of the blessings that are theirs, because they belong to him. Like I said in Romans 5 eight, God sent Jesus to pay the penalty of humanity's rebellion. Now, if you've been in church long at all, that's something that's so easy to gloss over, but that is one of the most crucial statements of all of life, that God sent Jesus to pay the penalties of humanity's rebellion. Romans 3.23 puts it so well. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified, forgiven, made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice. God put forward, right? The way that God's showing his love for us. He put forward as a sacrifice of atonement or forgiveness by his blood. Effective through faith. Those who have recognized Jesus as the son of God, 
the one who came to bring total redemption from our brokenness that we created, they have been fully atoned, forgiven, made spiritually whole of any time that they ever lived differently than they were created to live. Now, in that forgiveness lies a complete and unending reconciliation to your creator, the one who made you, the one who wants to guide you on how best to live. We are no longer held to the stipulations of the law, that contract that the Israelites were under. Jesus did not come to bring condemnation, but freedom. If you are his disciple, if you have come underneath him and desire to learn from him, to apply his teachings to your life, then you have been fully redeemed from any condemnation of you not living the way that God created you to live. You have been put in a place of utter reconciliation and freedom to enjoy your creator. It's got to be an amen statement, right? The third thing that I want you to walk away with, so the heart of the law, the fact that we are all held liable for any form of breaking the law, third thing that I want you to walk away thinking about is that we are called to do everything we can to avoid anger. Getting a little bit more applicable, isn't it? Not only does Jesus compare anger to murder, which we all know that we should avoid at all costs, he also clearly lays out the importance of seeking reconciliation for those relationships that have been under conflict. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So when you are offering your gift to the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. We can't understand this just based on our own culture, right? So we gotta think about what it was like for the first century Jew to hear this. For them, bringing a gift to the altar was of extreme importance. It showed their allegiance to God and also their faith that he had made a way for their forgiveness of the contract that they broke. For Jesus to tell his audience to leave the gift at the altar and first seek reconciliation was a very obvious way to show God's high priority of loving others. Even though a follower of Jesus is not held accountable for their selfishness and their failure to love, thank God for that, we are still called to make loving others one of our top priorities. God does not stop at forgiveness. He then wants us to be obedient to his commandments. It should be more important to you than going to church. Loving others should be more important to you than giving money to a church. It's kind of a heavy statement, isn't it? Apart from loving God, the greatest commandment, loving others should be at the top of our list. But how do we do this? We already talked about the battle that rages within everyone. How can we still express love to people when they push us into logical anger? Now, the longer I live, the more black and white life seems to become. Questions like this, how can I overcome? How could I possibly do this? It doesn't make sense to me, right? I've tried, but I can't. They're all answered with a simple statement, by depending on God. That's it. How do you love people well? By depending on God. 
When a person has been atoned through their faith in Jesus, like I mentioned, God doesn't stop with forgiveness. In that same moment, they are filled with the Spirit. That's another Christian cliche, but please break out of the haze. You have been filled with God himself, the third part of the Trinity, also known as the Holy Spirit. He has come and inhabited the deepest parts of who you are. That's your mind, your emotions, your willpower. Like I mentioned, those things that drive you to do what you do. That's where the Spirit of God is for those who believe in Jesus. From this position, he has the ability to empower you to live the way that you were created to live. Think about that. God himself within you. Think about the power that is within you, the ability to overcome. At this point, the battle between selfishness and selflessness, between anger and love, completely changes. It is no longer between your understanding of how you know you should act and your desire to act in the moment. It is now a battle between God himself and your flesh. It is between the creator of everything who now resides within you and your passing emotion and logic. Just think about that. Those two opponents fitted together the almighty maker of everything and your fleeting emotions and logic. Such a beautiful thing to understand because it means now in those moments when the fire is kindled within you and you see red, you have the choice of who you will depend on. Yourself, your mind, your emotions, or the God of the universe. In the heat of the moment, who you choose to depend on in so many ways will determine what you say and what you do. Instead of simply reacting to a person's ridiculousness, which we come in contact with that all the time, if you instead pause for a moment and ask God to give you patience. Ask him to empower you to love them the way that he wants you to. The Bible promises that he will give you the grace you need to do it. If on my way, storming up those stairs in the middle of the night, if I would have said that simple prayer, I believe that my rage would have been overpowered and that sippy cup would still be around. Now, the main reason why we know this, why I know this, is because you were created in God's image. You were designed to act the way that your creator acts. At the core of who God is, is love. When you turn to him, seeking his power to help you live that way, the way that he made you to live, then you will be able to live it. Now you possibly are thinking that I'm being overly optimistic. Like, oh yeah. I believe, he believes that this could happen, but this is just kind of happy, hippie nonsense. The reason Jesus was able to do everything that he did was because of his total dependence on God. Think about that. The reason that Jesus was able to do everything that he did was due to his total dependence on God. Over and over throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes this known. Let me just give you one example. John 6, 38. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You also hear him say, I do not speak my own words, but the words of him who sent me. Just over and over, Jesus says that I, that he fully depends on the one who sent him. When we depend on the one who made us instead of ourselves, we are able to be the salt and the light in the world, longing for more than they can create. We are able to give our creator the glory that he deserves. We're going to end the service with communion. Elders and ushers, if you wouldn't mind coming up, get the train rolling. Now, to take communion at Rimrock, you don't have to be a member. doesn't matter if people here like you or think you're cool. The only thing you need to take communion is a belief that Jesus is the Son of God and that he came to redeem you. There's nothing special with the bread. It's just bread. Or the juice, it's just juice. But this is a chance for you to hold within your hands a symbolic representation of Jesus' body which he broke for you. And his blood, his life that he poured out for you. There's something about the tangible that can take a conceptual understanding to a deeper level. We're going to take it together at the end. But as you hold this in your hands, I encourage you to consider what Jesus' selfless act of loving you has done for you. The way that his body broke and his blood poured out for you has changed everything. And then think about what God has called you to do for the people that are around you.